All right, so let's get into this. I want to talk to you about Jesus tonight because he's such an awesome uh, topic. And, and we we used to, I, I think we... I think we came close to ruining the word faith because what matters with words is not what they actually mean, but rather how we picture them working out. And so subtly over the last 200 years or so, faith became a what word. So think about what we, what, the way we use that word, like what do you believe? What do they believe? Do they believe what we believe? If you don't believe what we believe, you can't date my daughter, right? It's, it's, so faith was a what became a what word, but actually in their world, faith was not so much a what do you believe word. Faith was a who do you trust word, right? And so as Jesus followers, the idea is, is that Jesus should not be someone we believe in as if we could relegate Jesus to a bullet point on a pamphlet. Rather, Jesus should be more profound than that. Jesus should be a fundamental way of seeing our world. And I want to examine two stories about Jesus tonight from three passages of scripture that Jesus shows a bit of how he looks at the world. And it is incredibly challenging and incredibly convicting. And here's all I want us to do tonight with no guilt, no shame, no fear, no judgment. I want us to know and embrace that we are accepted by God and he is totally at ease with us based on the finished work of Christ that was accomplished before the foundation of the world. That said, our life should be so profoundly connected to that, that our life looks at our world, how Jesus looked at the world, because we believe his way brings life, not death, light, not dark. And that's what it's about. So I want us to ask the question, how does this challenge us? If this is how Jesus looks at the world, where do I need to adjust the way I see the world? Not because it appeases God more, but because it partners with God to bring his purposes around in our world, right? So this is Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 16. And someone in the crowd said to him, Rabbi or teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the first question I want us to wrestle with is this, is how much value do I gauge my life by the stuff I own? A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. So there's a guy and he says, Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And, and I'm sure he didn't get the answer he wanted because Jesus is like, man, what's that got to do with me? Like he, Jesus may have well have said, I find that boring. I don't find that topic intriguing at all. You want me? First of all, there's some wisdom in this. It's never a good thing to get involved in people's petty family squabbles, okay? Because one day they'll make up and then they'll remember whose side you took. It's not gonna work, right? So there's there's that as well. But in, in this story, the guy misjudges the situation. Next slide. So it was not in a rabbi's authority to make judicial decisions around land and inheritance. That wasn't his authority at all. So the guy say, hey, rabbi, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. First of all, even if Jesus wanted to get involved, 
He didn't have the judicial authority to do that. At best, Jesus would have been making a suggestion around how to live better, but it would have been up to the guy to respond or not respond, just like us. Jesus has accomplished everything for us, but it's up to us whether we participate in that or not. Jesus loves, he doesn't control, right? That's that's two different things. But even culture, rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus is like, I, what? Who, what's that got to do with me? Who made me judge or arbiter over you? What do you mean by this? So it was not in a rabbi's authority to be a judge or make judicial decisions over land or inheritance. Plus, what you have in this story is you have a global situation of world poverty. Less than 3% of people could even read. The Galilean region was under the boot of the oppressive empire of an occupying military juggernaut, the Roman Empire. Are you kidding me? By some historical estimations, they were living on 87% taxation, 50% of their, their grain, 30% of their fish, 12.5% just to Caesar himself for the divine privilege of having God rule you. You had the Romans roads taxes. You also had the temple tax and the dodginess of the tax collectors. The people in Galilee were losing their family land that had been in their family since the book of Joshua. And there's a guy there whose family has money to argue about. This is absurd. These people are so wealthy that they're the ones with money to argue about living in a world of suffering and poverty that Jesus is trying to serve. And he's coming to Jesus, asking him to solve a money squabble. And Jesus is essentially saying, your family's got money. Like, what are you talking about? No one else has money. Look around. Nobody else has money. And your family has money. And you're still not happy with how you're dividing up the money. So it was not in a rabbi's authority to handle judicial issues around land and inheritance. However, it was in a rabbi's authority to teach regarding one's heart and how you're viewing the world. So that's what happens here. Hey, rabbi, tell my brother to be fairer with the inheritance. She's like, what's that got to do with me? I'm, I'm bored with that. I don't find that interesting at all. What I do find interesting is the question underneath that question. You're asking me about inheritance and family and division. I'm less concerned about that and more concerned with the state of your heart, that something is going on in your heart where you actually think the value of your life is tied to the abundance of your possessions. Now that I want to address. And Jesus addresses it with a parable. Now, what, what's fixing to happen here is Jesus is going to do some rabbi kung fu, okay? So here's what he does. Keep, keep, the, keep the arc of the story going. Guy asks Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus is like, I, that doesn't have anything to do with me. What does have something to do with me is that there's something going on in your heart where you think the value of your life is affected by the abundance of your possessions. And I want to address that. And he does so by telling a parable. Now, this is where we got to understand parabolic teaching. So, when a rabbi tells a parable, there are normally three characters, sometimes four. Like there's four types of ground seed falls on. There's three characters in certain parables. And the idea is, is Western people read parables for content. Jewish people read parables for identification. The idea is, is that the rabbi tells the parable and the listener is supposed to identify with a character in that parable and then follow the advice of that character. In my opinion, you'd have to be a genius to teach like this, right? So, so if Jesus goes, I'm going to address the heart issue with a parable. He's normally going to tell a story, a fiction story, with three characters. 
and the guy's going to try to identify who he is in the story. And Jesus does some Hebrew Kung Fu here, and he answers this guy with a parable. The problem is he tells a parable with only one character. So there's only one possibility for the guy to identify with, and then that guy ends up being a fool. This is a rabbi's way of going, like, like, come on, you're a fool. This is dumb. This is not the right way to do things. Here's the parable Jesus tells. Here's what he says. And he told them a parable saying, this is the very next verse. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Let's stop and see if we can identify with someone in this story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. All of us woke up this morning in Australia, a top five greatest nation on the earth, a nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free. When I hear Australians complain about Australia, let me be blunt. Where you gonna go, bro? Seriously, if you can't make it here, man, where you gonna go? This is one of the greatest nations on the planet of earth. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. I was coming in tonight and I saw most of you drove a car in here. If you drove a motor car here tonight on a paved road, that puts you in the richest 7% of the whole world. If you left your second car at home, that puts you in the richest 1% of the whole world. If that second car is at home in a garage on a house that is built on a concrete foundation. That puts you in the richest one-tenth of 1% of the whole world. We are the rich man whose land has produced plentifully. We are that person somewhere in here right now. I don't know about now, but on Sunday, I'd bet a pretty good bet that there was an eight-year-old walking around this building with an $800 phone in their pocket. The land of a rich man produced Plentifully, according to Forbes magazine, the generation turning 19 today has more money available to them by the age of 19 than the previous four generations before it combined. And all you got to do is talk to them. Ask them, what's your plan? With a straight face, they'll go, you know what I'm thinking about doing? I'm thinking about taking a year off and walking around Europe. Who's got that kind of money? Evidently they do. I'm going to walk around and look at old buildings and drink $10 coffee. Really? Who's got that money? They do. I'm 44. We never thought about that. My dad never, never definitely thought about that. And I'm positive as far as I know that my grandparents never ate out once. And it's not because they didn't enjoy other people cooking them food. It's because they couldn't afford it. Yet I would bet that even an average wage person in here, at some point in the last 30 days, we went to a restaurant and ordered someone to cook us food. The land of a certain rich man produced Plentifully. The generation turning 19 today has more money than the previous four generations before it combined, yet psychology reports that they're also reporting higher levels of depression than ever before, higher levels of anxiety, and higher levels of suicidal thought. What's happening is, is the world is catching up to Jesus's wisdom that more stuff does not necessarily equate to more joy. More stuff doesn't equate to more happiness. More stuff does not equate to these things. This is why you can no longer present the gospel to a teenager by saying, believe in Jesus and one day you'll get to live in a mansion. They already live in a mansion and and they're upset about it, right? This is why, right? This is why is it that they have so much stuff and yet they have more depression? The answer to that is complex, but one answer is, is that meaning in life 
is a function of the tension between object desire and object cause. Object desire is that which you want. Object cause is that which stands in the way of what you want. Object cause is representative of the struggle it takes to get what you want. And all meaning in life is found in the object cause. All meaning in life is interpreted by the object cause. Like, what's more fun? Actually buying a car or test driving a bunch of them? It's more fun to test drive a bunch of them. What's more fun? Getting to the end of knowing your spouse or the process by which you get to know them, right? Like, the greatest marriages on earth are not the ones going, been together 35 years, already know everything about them. There's nothing else to learn. No, best marriages on earth are the ones that go, been together 35 years. I love her, but still don't have a flipping clue, but I'm loving every minute of it. It's that, right? Right, right? So if you want a new truck, that's your object desire. The object cause is what that truck cost. And so you sacrifice and you work an extra job. You put off eating out too much and you save and save and save and save and save and you finally get the truck. But the meaning in that truck is when you get in it, you remember all the sacrifices and the cause you made. One of the reasons that depression is on the rise amongst people who have more stuff than ever before is because we've removed the object cause from their life. When an eight-year-old has an $800 phone and did nothing to deserve it or earn it or work for it or process it, you can't then wonder why they're interpreting their life as less meaningful. Is their life meaningless? No, but they're interpreting it as less meaningful because we've removed the object cause. Sociologists and psychologists actually have a name for this. It's so prevalent. There's such a thing called helicopter moms, okay? You guys know this, right? right? Hel helicopter moms are moms who hover over their children to make sure that they never experience any pain. There's such a thing called lawnmower parents. Lawnmower parents are the ones who look over the path their, their, their kids are fixing to walk and they get in front of them and they mow down all the obstacles so that the poor little things don't experience any pain. Let them experience some object cause. They'll interpret their life as more meaningful. I know moms who do their children's homework for them so that they never get a bad grade. What are you doing? I promise you, I don't remember my mother even helping me with my homework, much less doing it for me. I, I remember my friends getting their parents to do it for them. And I remember figuring out, and I was like, hey, Guys, how do y'all do that? Your mom just did your homework for you. Here's what they did. We're probably in third grade. They're like, Shane, you haven't figured this out? Here's what you do. You just act like you don't understand over and over and over and over again. And she'll pull her hair out going nuts and she'll just finally sit down and do it for you. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I gotta try this, right? I could take you to the place I tried this. In the dining room of 1345 Mall Street Road in North Charleston, South Carolina. I was in third grade. I was like, I'm gonna give this a go. I was sitting in there with my homework. I said, Mom, Mom, <laughs> I need help with my homework. She goes, what's the problem? I said, I don't understand that. I just did what they told me to do. They said it would work. She goes, you don't understand that. I said, no. She said, do me a favor. What's written in the top left-hand corner of that piece of paper? I said, it says third grade. She said, right. She said, what grade are you in? 
I said, third grade. She said, so you sure the top left corner of that paper don't say fifth grade? I said, I'm positive. She said, that says third grade, right? I said, yeah. She said, and you're in what grade? I said, third grade. She said, that means the curriculum writers think you could do it. Your teacher thinks you could do it. I think you could do it. And you're at least of above average intelligence. That means you know you should do it. So quit being lazy and do your flipping work. <laughs> That's object cause. See, you can't, you can't remove all the object cause from people's life and then expect them to interpret their life with more meaning, right? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. We have more money, more stuff. I, get, I, I would bet this. I would bet that most, there might be an exception, most people in this room right now have a room in their house that they never walk in. <laughs> in other words, we're paying money every month to ANZ Bank on interest to pay for space we never actually use so that people we don't like will think we're more successful than we actually are. <laughs> we sign up for 30 years of entirely too much pressure to do this. The land of a certain rich man produced plentifully. Have we found ourselves in the parable yet? <laughs> right? If, you're, if you missed the whole point, we are the rich man whose land is producing plentifully, all right? Here's, 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 what he, here's what he says. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, if you're a note taker, that's the key phrase. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain. You realize he's lying to himself already. I have nowhere to store my crops. That's a lie. He's got barns. That's where you store crops. The problem is, even where he's got to store his stuff, that's full. So it's not that he has nowhere to store it. It's just even his storage areas are full. This is us. This is us. There are businesses that are quite lucrative, actually. I'd like to own one now that I think about it. There are businesses, and all it is is cinder block, a roof, and a garage door. And people pay every month to store their stuff in there and they'll never touch it. We're paying money every month for someone to store the stuff we don't actually touch or need anymore. And the land of a rich man <laughs> produced plentifully. So in this story, there's a guy, he doesn't know what to do with all of his stuff. And there's, there's such a sarcastic tone. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to a guy whose family has a lot of money. And he's like, a land of a certain rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, self, what should I do with all my extra stuff? And there's this sarcastic undertone. You're standing in a world in 98% poverty and you're wondering what to do with all your stuff. There's this undertone of, oh, gee, bro, I don't know. What could you do with all your extra stuff? And the guy goes, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll store it up for myself. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Now, when God starts calling you a fool, this is a bad day, right? Like, can we all agree that if Jesus was telling a parable about our life, we don't want to be the punchline, right? Like, if you don't remember nothing else I say tonight, remember this. 
live in such a way where you're never the punchline in Jesus's parables, okay? Like live in such a way where you're never the punchline in Jesus's parables. Fool, this night your soul's gonna be required of you and the things you've prepared, what's gonna happen then? So it is the one who lays up for himself treasure, but is not rich towards God. So a couple of thoughts about this. Anytime you open the Bible, you wanna ask what happened and then what's happening in me right now because of it. And some people learn better with narrative. So some of you really enjoyed that part. Some of you learn better with linear bullet points. So instead of picking one or the other, I just did both. Here is that same story in bullet points. This is a teaching based on the dangers of coveting and being greedy. This is the only story in Jesus's whole ministry where someone does something so heinous, they die for it, which I find amazing. Like Jesus dealt with a lot of nefarious characters. He dealt with a lot more serious mistakes than this guy. But you think about Jesus's response, lady caught in the act of adultery. He's like, you know what stuff happens? Don't do that again. You know, come on, let's, let's, let's go forward and, and sin no more, but we're going to let you off the hook. There's a thief on the cross. He's like, oh yeah, forgive him. There's people, there's people mocking and scourging him and putting crown of thorns on his head. And he's like, you know what? They, they don't know. Father, forgive them too, you know. There's tax collectors up trees and he's like, I wanna come eat with you. You know, Jesus is nice to everybody, but a rich man in the middle of suffering who doesn't know what to do with his extra stuff, Jesus is like, what are you gonna do with the extra stuff? He's like, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna build bigger barns, store it up for myself. Jesus is like, what? I am going to kill you, <laughs> right? Like, like, I, like, what, like, like, what are you talking about? See, in this story, you have a world of suffering, but one man has so much food, he can't work out what to do with it all. Number four, and he thought to himself. In a first century context, Hebraic context, this makes him an idiot. Like, the, the, rabbis, the, you don't do stuff like to just think, just, even if you're doing something good, if you told a rabbi, I've been studying the Bible on my own, they'd be like, Why? Do you have no friends to run it by? Like, you think you can draw conclusions about God without running it by anybody? How arrogant are you? So for Jesus to tell a parable and go, this guy was only thinking to himself. This is like an idiot. He's living as though he's isolated from the rest of the world. This is the opposite of coming together and doing life together and engaging the world together. This is a guy oblivious to how his actions or inactions are affecting everybody else. The antagonist in this story is not an adulterer. He's not a fornicator. He's not an addict and he's not a murderer. What's his problem? He's selfish. The second question I want us to ask tonight about Jesus's worldview is what should I do with all my money? So, so, so the first question is, do I believe more stuff makes me more valuable? The second question is, is what do I do with all my extra money? And that's something we got to wrestle with because in general, there might be an exception, but in general, in this room, we have extra money. We have extra money and lots of it. I, I, I would bet a good chunk of change. Ev almost, almost everyone in this room went to a restaurant in the last 30 days and ordered someone to cook us food. I, 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 I know 19-year-olds that stop by Zarafa's every day and get a $5 coffee on their way to work. And then they get a $5 coffee on their way home. Well, they're, on, they're making $20 an hour. That's the first 30 minutes of their day. They don't care. And what does that do? It makes you slightly more alert for 14 minutes and then you have to pee. That's it. It's like, okay, that'll do. That was worth 30 minutes of my day. You know, like we have extra stuff. We have so much extra money. If you Google massage 
places in Toowoomba. There's probably 14 or 15 places full of people making a full-time wage rubbing people. Like, we have so much money that we can pay people $60 an hour to rub our shoulders because we feel tight today. <laughs> that is a relatively new luxury that my great, you asked my grandma, when's the, when's the last time you paid someone to give you a neck rub? What, what, what are you talking about? What do we do with all of our extra money? Let's say this way. I'm in the richest 1% of the world. What should I do with all my extra money? This is why questions like, does God actually require that we tithe? Does he require that we take care of the poor? Those questions make no sense. That makes no sense. Like people ask me all over the world, Shane, how do you feel about the, the church is in decline? The church is in decline. How do you feel about the church being in decline? The thing is, is I don't think the church is in decline. I do think the church is being forced to grow up and lose a lot of that. What do I get if I do something language? Like, what do I get if I follow God? What do I get if I tithe? What do I get if I take care of the poor? That question makes no sense unless you're four. If you're four, what do I get if I do the right thing makes sense? Like if a four-year-old says, mom, dad, I want to try to make my bed myself. If I do it right, will you give me a dollar? Fair enough if they're four, but if you're still paying a 14-year-old a dollar to make his bed, you've missed the whole point of parenting, right? It's not wrong, it's just juvenile, right? And that's what's happening, is the church is having to lose that. Listen, if the only reason you're living for God is an expectation of reward or a fear of punishment, that's you're not a very good person, right? We should be bringing light and life to our world regardless of fear of punishment and regardless of expectation of reward because that's a more mature way to follow God. You fool. See, the Greek word here is, is not is not a comment on his intelligence. It, it's, it, it, the intelligence one was a different word. The word translated fool here is a fron, which is a diaphragm. It literally means no diaphragm. It's literally you breathless one or you useless one. Jesus is brilliant here. He's like, I'm not even gonna get into whether it's right or wrong to build bigger barns. I'm not. Is it right to build bigger barns? Not really. Is it wrong? No, it's your land. It's your stuff. It's not about right or wrong. I can say looking at the world this way is useless. It's useless. And I want us to wrestle with this. Are we barn builders or community makers? That's the question. Are we barn builders or community makers? Because he's like, hey, right or wrong? I don't know. Useless? I do know. That's useless. See, being rich towards God, in this story, it seems like a heart condition that considers others and our place in the whole. What makes this guy so foolish is that he's thinking to himself. He's not considering his place in the together whole because God is not someone we can love, but rather someone we find in the act of love itself. See, in this story, it shows the difference between a rich man and a wealthy steward. And the truth of it is, is you don't want to be a rich man. I don't know of, I don't think there is not one positive reference to a rich man in the whole of scripture. And especially with Jesus. If Jesus ever starts a story, there was a certain rich man with no name, it ends poorly, right? Just not, it's not going to end well, right? So we don't want to be a rich man. And you know what? Some well-meaning people have looked at this exact passage of scripture and made a choice. And that choice is, I'm abandoning all money. 
I'm taking a vow of poverty. I can't, I don't want to be that guy. I'm taking a vow of poverty. Now, I think they're missing the point. At the same time, I honor their authenticity and I honor, I, I, I honor their seriousness. I honor it because they did something I'm not willing to do, right? And so I honor that, but I think that's missing the point. I don't think the point Jesus is making here is to be anti-money. I think the point Jesus is making here is that if you're blessed, think about what you're gonna do with that excess to make the world a better place. The difference between a rich man, which is bad, and a wealthy steward, which is good, is nothing to do with the amount of money or the amount of barns. It has to do with how you think about that money and what are we gonna do with our extra stuff? The question Jesus is asking us to wrestle with tonight is this, is do I believe more stuff makes my life more valuable? What do I do with all my extra money? And am I a barn builder or a community maker? He addresses this one other way with one other story. It's a parable. Now remember, in a parable, the listener is listening for who he is in the story. The answer to the person's question is found in who they identify with in the story. Now let's look at this, given that in mind. And a lawyer, a lawyer um, is not what we're thinking like attorney at law. This was someone who was an expert in the Torah, we, a Pharisee, someone who knows how to work Leviticus and Deuteronomy, okay? A lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Rabbi, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, you come forward and you pray the sinner's prayer and ask me in your, no. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that about Jesus. He's like, I don't know you well enough to know where you are. So you, you tell me how you read it first. How do you inherit eternal life? You, you tell me. You tell me where you are. And, and he answered, well, the way I understand it is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, five seconds for Bible nerds. In Greek, that's in something called the first attributive position. First attributed position means that the first condition and the second condition are the same. In other words, loving God is loving people and loving people is loving God. And you can't separate the two, right? So love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live, right? Eternal life in Jesus's day had nothing to do with going to heaven when you died. It had everything to do with profoundly connecting with that divine life that had been active before the foundation of the world and is holding all things together now and we get to touch it. And you see that at the end of the line. He says, if you do that, you'll live. This is about living now. This is about, hey, this is the best life. Love God and treat others as you would wanna be treated, right? But he desiring to justify himself said, well, then who's my neighbor? In other words, if I have to love my neighbor like I love myself, can you give me the boundaries? What group of people exactly do I need to learn like I love myself? In other words, he's trying to make it smaller, narrower. And Jesus replied with a parable. Now remember, let's keep this in mind. He is a Pharisee who's asking a question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus does not give him an answer. Jesus says, I'll answer you with a parable. Instantly, the Pharisee is gonna be listening for who he is in the story. Now, in normal Jewish parabolic teaching, there's three characters and you're not gonna be the first and you're not gonna be the second, but you are gonna be the third. It's a setup, right? And so here's, here's the way it goes. Watch what he says. And Jesus wrote, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. So the first character is a priest. Now, here's the question. Is the Pharisee gonna identify with the priest? No chance on the earth. There was a huge rift between the priest and the Pharisees for two reasons. One, to be a priest, you had to be born. That is all. <laughs> to be a Pharisee, you had to go through 30 years of training. So there was a, there was a tension between people who had to earn their way and people who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. That's first. Second tension was the Pharisees were barracking for the entirety of the Old Testament to be included in the Bible. The priest only wanted the first five books of Moses, the Torah. The reason is, is the first five books of Moses said you needed priests to offer sacrifices to make you okay with God. The prophets were saying, actually, no, God does not delight in sacrifices. Just do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with God, you'll be okay. And if people actually believe that, then the priests were gonna be out of a job a little bit. It was gonna cost them money. So there was a rift between the priest and the Pharisees over, wait for it, money. Now, I know that's shocking, right? So when the, who, who do I need to love like I love myself? Jesus says, well, there's this guy walking along. He's a priest. The Pharisee would have thought, oh, good, He's not my neighbor. Thank goodness I don't have to love those people like I love myself. That would be awful. A priest goes by and passed by on the other side. Next slide. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, would a Pharisee have identified with a Levite? No, same reason. Saying a Levite's like saying a priest in training, right? So there was a priest and there was a priest in training. The guy would have went, yeah, no, 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 no. Get to the third one. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Just get to the third one. I need to know who I need to love like I love myself. The third character, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he gave out two denarii. Say, he gave it to the innkeeper. Say, hey, take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? And he said, watch what he says. He can't even say the word. He says, oh, the one who has showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. See, if you're not the first, you're not the second, you're automatically the third. The Pharisee doesn't want to love the priest like he loves himself. He definitely don't want to love a Levite like he loves himself. So he's hoping the third character is going to be who? Pharisees. He goes, ah, the third character is a Samaritan which ironically is the one group of people they hated worse than the priest, right? Like they would have drove miles out of their way. Jesus is like, ah, no, no. Until you learn to love the one you hate the most, like you love yourself, you haven't begun to live. And this, this wasn't about going to heaven when you die. This is about, hey, hey, real life, real life. Real life is found when you finally learn to love the one you hate the most. At that moment, you're starting to live. That's when you start, when you can treat someone who deserves it differently, when you can treat them as they are worth and never as they deserve, that's where life actually starts. Now, let's talk about the bullet points on this. See, we read parables for content. Ancient Hebrews read for identification. The person asking the question is a Pharisee. And so who does he identify with in the parable? He has to identify with the Samaritan. The point I think Jesus is making, one of them is this, number four. Who is my neighbor is the wrong question. So the guy says, I need to love my neighbor as I love myself. Who's my neighbor? Who is that group of people? Jesus is saying, who's my neighbor is the wrong question because it makes it smaller. 
The right question, number five, is how can I be a neighbor is the correct question. To live small, you ask the question, who's my neighbor? Who's the, what is the narrowest definition of who is in? And I'll love those people. Jesus is like, what a ridiculous anti-life question. Who is my neighbor is an anti-life question. How can I be a neighbor is how you live. Waking up every day saying yes to the possibilities of being a neighbor to somebody else. How can I show mercy to someone who doesn't earn it, doesn't deserve it? And in that moment, I can find a profound sense of the, of the presence of God. I think there's four questions that Jesus wants us to wrestle with tonight as followers of Christ. And it's nothing to do with guilt, shame, fear, judgment, or the afterlife. I'm talking about living here as Jesus people for the sake of the world. Four questions. Do I believe that more stuff makes my life more valuable? What am I doing with all my extra money to bless others? Am I a barn builder or community maker? And how can I be a neighbor today? How can I wake up tomorrow intent to be a neighbor and not just trying to define who is my neighbor? See, in this story, the man's neighbor was the person he hated the most. Just one quick 30-second thought for the Bible nerds. Number seven, there's a, there's a principle here going on called calve comer. In Hebrew, light and heavy, or light and matter, okay? So, so, so the, the rabbis had a task. Sometimes the Bible contradicts itself, okay? Now take a deep breath. We know that to be true. It creates ethical dilemmas. Let, let, me, give you, let me give you an example. Does the Bible say thou shalt not kill? Yes, and we affirm that, and that is a very good idea, Right? right? You can't be the light of the world sitting up a city set up on a hill if you're killing other people, right? But what if, what if people come into your house with weapons intent to kill you? Are you allowed to defend yourself, right? So it's ethical. We have whole college courses on this. It's called ethics. So here was the problem with this passage. The Torah says that it was against the law to touch someone bleeding out. The Torah also says it's a sin to leave someone for dead. Now, if it's a sin, and can we get an amen on that? Like, hey, if you see someone on the street and they're about to die, stop whatever you're doing and help them, right? Good plan. But the Torah also says, if you touch someone bleeding out, that's a problem. Now, can you see where that would put your life in an ethical problem, right? If you touch someone bleeding out, you're sinning. If, if you leave them for dead, you're sinning. So the rabbis had to answer the question, when faced with that problem, what do you do? Which is the lighter thing and which is the heavier thing? What's the lighter matter and what's the heavier matter? And in Jesus's yoke, in Jesus's way of seeing the world, here's what he says. When faced with that dilemma, always err on the side of mercy instead of being right about one verse in Leviticus. Always, always err on the side of mercy. In other words, Followers of Jesus should be less concerned with being right about one verse in the Bible and more concerned with fulfilling the entirety of scripture by doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. Can we all agree together that if we were lying dead, half dead on the side of the road and three Christians walked by, you wouldn't want them debating the merits of not touching someone bleeding. You would want them to get you help and then argue the theology later, right? Jesus is like, forget all the deep theology, forget all the pedantic, stuff. Forget all that. That bogs you down. Here's what you do. You do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and you fulfilled scripture, and so you don't have to be bogged down with being right about one verse, right? 
This is a profound way to live. In, in other words, the heavier command was to have mercy. Now, good teachings meant to be wrestled with, not agreed with, nor disagreed with. So four questions I want us to wrestle with. Number one, are we too independently minded? Have we seen ourselves isolated from the dance or are we willing to come together and see our part in the dance and what that part, how that part affects others? Maybe we could say it this way. How are my actions or inactions affecting others? Let's say it this way. Number three, where do I need to share my good things now? Starting today. Fourth question, who do I hate the most? Is there anyone that I secretly think deserves to suffer? Is there anyone I secretly think, would I, would I privately celebrate if I read on Facebook that they were struggling? They got knocked down to size. You know? Five, how can I be a neighbor today? How can I be a neighbor today? And how can being a neighbor actually be a part of my own redemptive process? Learning to love someone, not because they deserve it, but because they're worth it. What can that teach me about the character of God who loved me while I was still his enemy, enough to die for me? So do we think that our life is given value by more stuff? What do we do with all of our extra money? Am I a barn builder or a community maker? And how can I be a neighbor today? I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to not just be people who go to heaven when you die, although we embrace that, but be people bringing heaven to every place we see hell today. How do we do that? We come together and we hold ourselves accountable to seeing the world how Jesus saw it. May we, be barn, may we be community makers and die to our tendency to be barn builders. May we be community makers, waking up every day saying yes to being a neighbor for somebody else. Let me close our time out with a word of prayer. So Lord, we love you, we honor you. We submit our life to you again. Lord, we confess that your way is the best way to see the world. Forgive us for where we varied from that. Would you give us the courage to come together and be Jesus' people for the sake of the world? Would you teach us to see the world how you saw it? Bring life and light instead of death. May we be community makers and never barn builders, waking up every day asking a profound question, how can I be a neighbor today? I want you just right now underneath your breath, ask this question, Holy Spirit, would you bring somebody to my mind that I can be a neighbor to? Who can I show mercy to? Who can I be compassionate with? Maybe you're here tonight and you've never said yes to Jesus. And tonight could be the night you respond and you say, you know what? Jesus, I'm gonna put my trust in your version of my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. And I'd like to invite you into that. I'd like to see the world how you see it because I believe that's life. I wanna live. Lord, would you empower us? Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for being a part of your week. Thank you so much for being so kind to me. Um, every time I come here, I say everything I know. There's so many meetings. <laughs> and then I go and I read more and learn more stuff. And so I'm just glad to be a part of the journey here. I love you. You're part of one of the great churches in the world. May you know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. May you know that he's entrusted you not to just go to heaven when you die, 
but to bring heaven to every place you see hell here. May you endeavor to hold yourself and each other accountable by coming together to see the world Jesus' way. And may we be the source of light and life by being community makers instead of barn builders. In the name of Jesus, be courageous enough to be a neighbor every day. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.